Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm glad that you have tuned into the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I don't know how your day has been. I don't know how your week has been. But I am glad that you are listening to CRL. I'm glad that you are here and looking forward to you interacting with us. As usual, sitting across the broadcast desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan. And thank you, uh, listeners, for allowing us to be in your home this evening. There are a number of ways that you can interact with us on the program tonight. You can send us your questions. You can suggest a future topic. In fact, tonight's topic is a topic that was suggested by a listener, a question that was asked about this topic. Now, before we get to tonight's topic, we have a number of questions that have come in since we were last live, uh, which was two weeks ago. Pastor, here's a text message from St. Kitts. Good night, Pastor. In Jeremiah 31, 22, how long wilt thou, and the verse says, how long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Pastor, the phrase, a woman shall compass a man, meaning that she is the father of her own child, referring to Christ, Seeing he was not conceived by man, is it true? You know, I, when I first uh, got this text, I thought it was a simple text to explain. And I did some investigation uh, on it, and I was surprised at the variant interpretations in connection with this verse. Number one, I, I couldn't see the connection between the virgin birth in this verse. However, I looked at it, it was puzzling for me. How, how does a person get the virgin birth out of this? And then I did some research in terms of some commentators, including some of the church fathers and uh, some of the Reformed theologians. And to my great shock and dismay, a lot of them interpret this passage to refer to the virgin birth. But um, I was trying to understand how can a woman shall compass a man, how does that uh, devolve into an interpretation of the virgin birth? So I am not satisfied that it's the correct interpretation. I think it's a strain interpretation. And I think the best way to understand this text, basically, is to get the context of the passage to see what that was teaching. If you read the passage very carefully uh, from Jeremiah 31, you'll see that it has to do with uh, three main things. The first 14 verses, it has to do with the fact that Israel has been scattered and God is going to regather them. So you you see that in verses 1 to 14. We can't read all of it, Nathan. But any person that reads that would see that it has to do with Israel who has scattered, been um, God in his judgment has sent them among the nations. And then in verses 20 
uh, 15 to 20, it talks about Israel no need, no, no longer has to shed tears. Um, that what's going to happen is that the Lord is going to regather his people, Israel is going to repent, and he's going to bring them back into Palestine. And then we come to the uh, the, the last section, which has to do that to incentivize them to start preparing to return. Uh, we have that particular verse that you mentioned there in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, 22. As a matter of fact, if you read the uh, few verses before, uh, you'll see that the Lord tells them, look, put up some signs along the way because you're going back home. Read it for just a moment. Read, I think if you read verse um, 20 to 21. Okay, uh, thirty-one twenty. Jeremiah thirty-one twenty says, "Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him," saith the Lord. Verse twenty-one: Set thee up way markers, make thee high heaps, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentst. Turn again. O virgin of Israel, turn again to these city, to thy city. Again, he's calling Israel to, you know, you're going to go back the same path you were carried into. So put some sign marks as it were because you're going back home. You're certainly going back home. Then after he says that, the next verse, verse 22. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Right. So he's now saying, why do you delay? Uh, you know, why do you turn about so often? I'm, I'm calling you to go back home. But what's the point of the delay? Why haven't you returned? Why are you halting about this returning? And then the Lord gives a promise, as it were. He said, a woman should compass a man. And it's a new thing the Lord will begin in the earth. And again, he's going to create a new thing. And what is this new thing he's going to create? He's going to do something that seemed quite unusual and quite supernatural. Remember that in this passage, he refers to Israel as a virgin in verse um, 4, verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31. You'll find that he refers to Israel as a virgin. So this is the woman will compass a man. And the, the idea here is that the woman is Israel. Okay, and uh, and the word there, compass. By the way, um, it has many different meanings. But in the Hebrew language, it means to 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 be brought around. It means to march around or walk around. It means to skirt. It means to make a circuit. It means to circle about. So what he's saying there is that uh, the man in this passage, just like Israel, is the woman because she describes a virgin. Um, she is the weak vessel. The, the the great and uh, what the word here man by the way is a mighty man that's the term that is used there so what is he's really doing like it's like a proverb that is being presented here and he's saying that this weak nation of Israel that I'm going to bring back home she is going to skirt around and come around this great mighty man which is Babylon and that's the whole idea that and, and not Israel can't do it by herself. God is going to supernaturally enable Israel to skirt or come around Babylon to go back home. That's the that's the interpretation that I think is most viable because if you read the whole context, it's about God bringing Israel back home. But that's like a proverb. A woman should compass a man. A, a woman should skirt around the man and come around as though bypass this great person who's supposed to block her way. He's, God is going to create something so that she goes around and is able to return to her land. That, in my judgment, is the best and proper interpretation. However, 
I would admit that having looked at what some of the other um, senior and, and, and very great scholars have said about this passage, um, they do take this and, and, and take it to mean that uh, it's referring to the virgin birth. I don't think, in my judgment, that the virgin birth needs any kind of um, support. I think it's very plainly thought in the Bible, especially in the book of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a virgin shall conceive. It's also confirmed in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter chapter 1. So this is not a verse that I would use as a relevant text to prove the virgin birth. And I do think it's a strained interpretation to make this mean that um, that this is a woman. And by the way, the word woman that is used here is not the same word used for for a virgin uh, uh, in, in the sense that is used in the book of Isaiah. So I don't think that the interpretation here has to do with a virgin being conceived. I think it's a proverb. A woman should compass a man. God is going to do something extremely great. But it's just like a proverb or a euphemism that God is using. It's like a quote. You can go around the people and quote this verse, a woman should compass a man. In other words, Israel is going to skirt around this great, mighty uh, nation, uh, Babylon, because Israel is the woman, Babylon is the man, and she's going to bypass, and it's going to be something miraculous because uh, it doesn't seem any way that they can get back home except God intervene. So this is going to be something God is going to do. So it's like a proverb that was was given as an incentive to encourage the people. Why you keep halting? Why you don't return? So it's a proverb to incentivize them to return. But I am not uh, in any way um, going to um, bash the interpretation that it could be uh, referring to the, a, a virgin, uh, the virgin birth, but I don't see it in the text at all. It doesn't make any connection at all, and I think that the interpretation is strained. But nonetheless, there are many, many uh, vital Bible scholars who indicate that this is the, their interpretation, but I don't endorse it. I think it's about Israel returning and God miraculously bringing her around this great colossal man that would block her way, and she's coming back home. That's the incentive. I see a number of verses here, and you referenced it, where God refers to Israel as a virgin of Israel. Is there a significance there? Any thoughts as to why he uses that phrase? I don't know in the passage uh, in particular. I mean, it's like his daughter is a reference to the nation of Israel. Okay. Uh, she's is special to him. I think that would be interpretation. But again, I think because that word is used again and again in the passage, I can see people taking it to mean that. But I can't see how in the world uh, taking that. Uh, uh, the word compass has nothing to do with um, gestation. Uh, it has to do with coming around, encircling. It has to do with uh, bypassing, skirting, etc. So I think it's a strained interpretation. I just think it's one of those poetic expressions that the Bible uses uh, to express um, this kind of poetically or allegorically. But I do believe that um, the proper interpretation is that a woman should skirt around this mighty man, meaning that Israel will bypass this colossal in her way, preventing her from returning. So God is saying, uh, just, 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 uh, it's like a quotation: a woman will compass a man. You're coming around this, this, this mighty uh, object that stands among them, which is Babylon. I think that's the best interpretation, as far as I'm concerned. Next question that has come in: Can you please explain Colossians two nine, which says? For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, I think the best way to interpret that this passage is to read the context and see exactly why Paul brought in this particular verse at this point in time. If you read verse 9 for just a moment, um, this is what you just read. Uh, verse 8. 
Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Again, after Paul makes that statement, then he makes a statement in verse number 9 that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, what Paul is here dealing with, uh, we need to grasp the context, he's, he's uh, dealing with a Colossian heresy that is uh, t- teaching that there is no this knowledge, fuller knowledge than you find in Christ Jesus. And uh, uh, Paul is asking them to be aware of the danger of being spoiled. The word being spoiled means being led astray or being taken plunder uh, or, or like a, a person who is robbing a place to collect the pillage, etc., etc. And he said that the way that they do this is through philosophy and he's talking about the cur- current contemporary system of thought that was in vogue in Colossae um, in respect to the fact that there was knowledge superior to Christ. Uh, and Paul calls it vain deceit. And that word means useless, empty, uh, duplicitous uh, deceit. Uh, and he said this after the tradition of men. And this has to do perhaps with the rabbinical teachings of the Judaistic element that was there in uh, Colossae. And then he calls it the rudimentary elements of the of the world. And the word rudimentary means the big basic elementary principles that uh, cults and different groups would hold together. So this is a combination of Judaistic um, tradition that is married to this um, cultic teaching there in, in Colossae. Uh, and Paul is, is, is saying to these uh, believers, don't be misled by this false philosophy because you don't need anything other than Christ. Christ is all-sufficient and he's the one that you need to look to. And it's then in that context that he points out that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And what that means is, uh, and the term that is used there, by the way, when he says that, for in him dwelleth, the word dwelleth means dwelleth permanently. And the fullness of the Godhead, the word is theotis, which has to do with the essence of God, the, the nature of God. So Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the essence of God dwells permanently in him in bodily form because he became incarnated. So you don't need to go outside of Christ because he is God in his very nature and his very essence. So he's actually uh, arguing the deity of Christ and the fact that he's God and therefore we don't need to go outside of the doctrine of Christ to find any greater knowledge because all the knowledge about God is found in him. He's the fullness of the Godhead. He has the full nature of the Godhead, the full essence of the Godhead in himself. So uh, there's no need for any philosophy beyond that. That's the highest philosophy as far as the Christian is concerned. So there's no need to be allow uh, human philosophy, human thinking, to move you away from this doctrine of Christ because he's the fullness of God, basically. And you can't want more than God uh, I mean, that's what all the philosophers are looking for. And in Christ, you've got the fullness of the Godhead. That means the fullness of the essence of God in this person himself. So you don't need to go beyond him. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 745. Thank you to the individual who has sent in these questions. Pastor, the next one is, explain the spirit of divination and the spirit of Python. I think we... Mentioned this at the previous broadcast, if I'm not mistaken, what we did perfectly. I, I mentioned that uh, the word divination is found 12 times in the Old Testament. It is found in the passage there in Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 16. But by definition, divination has to do with the 
seeking to find information about the future and to discover knowledge by some supernatural occult means. Uh, that is what uh, divination is. In the text in Acts chapter 16, uh, it is described as fortune-telling. This lady apparently had the capacity that people would go to her and to find out uh, about the future, find out about maybe um, things about people, etc., etc. But she had the capacity, uh, you might call it ESP or whatever, but she had the capacity to uh, tell people things about the future. The word that is used here, um, spirit of divination, if you check in the uh, concordance, is actually the spirit of Python. And the question is, why would it be in the Bible, uh, in the Greek language, it's spirit as Python? Why, why would the translators put the spirit of divination? Because in Greek mythology, Python was the name given to the serpent that dwelled at uh, Pythos, at the foot of Mount uh, uh, Parnassus. And we are told that he, that serpent was guarding the oracle of the priest of Delphi. Delphi is a temple where they had a woman in there who was uh, under the influence of demonic powers and who can heal and who can tell the future. As a matter of fact, uh, Python was the, um, the, the god of healing, the god of medicine. That's why you notice that even in the symbol for medicine, you've got a, like a sword and you've got a serpent. Right. Right, because that's the god of medicine, the god of healing. It is said that Apollos slew uh, Python and took over uh, from Python so that now Apollos is supposed to be the, the, the great god that has conquered Python. So the reason why they put the word spirit of Python um, has to do with the fact that uh, this um, woman who was there at Delphi, Oracle, that would be able to tell that she was the, she was the, um, the patron of of. Um, Patron of the God of Divinity, uh, the, the God that would divine. So uh, this is why that term is used there uh, in that particular passage. It's the same thing as divination. She was just functioning as a medium through which the, the, the demons would speak. And so that, that's why that term is used there. But it has to do with divination. It has to do with seeking knowledge outside uh, the pale that our Lord has indicated. Because in the book of the Old Testament, we are warned against any form of divination. We look to God. We look to the Scriptures. We don't look outside Scripture. And all occult means that try to find and to divine the future uh, are contrary, contrary to Scripture and condemned in Scripture. This is something that's forbidden. But this lady uh, is a person who had the capacity to fortune tell. And as I tried to point out, Python was the, the god that this woman worshipped and was a serpent that protected the, her at Delphi that Apollos is supposed to have killed. Uh, but um, So it has to do with this matter of divination, has to do with fortune telling and telling the future. Next question that has come in. Pastor, why was Jesus called the son of David and is the seed of a woman? I don't know if that's supposed to be what is the seed of a woman. No, I think I think when I read the question, I think the person is trying to say why, I mean, if he's a seed of a woman, why he still needs to be called the son of David. Oh, okay. And there are two reasons for that. Uh, he's called the son of David because all the prophetic writings and all the, the writings of the Old Testament indicate that the Messiah is going to come through the line of David. So he has to be the son of David. So when you trace back his genealogy, he must be able to go through the Davidic line. If he doesn't go through the Davidic line, he's not the Messiah. But um, he also has to be the seed of a woman because he must not have an earthly father. And, and that's why he's called the seed of a woman and not the seed of a man. He didn't have an earthly father. Uh, 
Uh, God was his father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he's both this. But on Mary's side, Mary is on the side of David. Again, she comes through the lineage of David. And then his stepfather, Joseph, which is the legal person that he would have the throne, he's also of the lineage of David. So he must be a son of David because he must come to the Davidic line. But he must also be a seed of a woman. He must not have an earthly father. So that's why he's given that distinction because if he didn't make that distinction, you would think that he would have an earthly father because he comes through the line of David. But he comes to the line of David through Mary, and he comes to the line of David through the stepfather. And Joseph being his stepfather, he's a legal father, so he inherits the throne to, to him. But he must be only of a seed of a woman because he has no earthly father. So it's important that he both be a seed of a woman and also be the son of David. Uh, that's how important the credentials are for the Messiah. When the Messiah came on the scene, uh, Israel had to know that this is the Messiah. And he had to come to a, a, a particular pedigree and genealogy. And it must be through the Davidic line. And But at the same time, he must not have an earthly father. He must only be the seed of the woman. And that's why you have those two parallel passages. Remember in Galatians chapter 4, uh, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Uh, and by the way, the uniqueness about this matter, the seed of the woman, because in the Bible, it's always the seed of the man. It's never the seed of the woman. But this was a unique supernatural event to take place. It's called the virgin birth where one would be born without a father because the Holy Spirit would be the one who would act and implant the seed in, in Mary's womb. The next question, who was Israel's first judge? Uh, we all know that the case with Israel in the Old Testament, that God established uh, judges in the Old Testament in order to deal with the problems Israel was encountering because Israel refused to um, first of all, purge the land of all the uh, ungodly um, tribes that still remain there. And as a result of that, um, Israel disobedience, uh, God decided that he would leave some of those nations in the land itself and they would test Israel. And because of Israel's disobedience, there would be a thorn in Israel's side. But God in his compassion, every time there was a problem and they were invaded, they would cry unto the Lord for help and the Lord would raise up uh, uh, what is called a judge and the first judge in the Bible is Othniel and he is the one that helped Israel to be delivered from the king of Mesopotamia you find that in the book of Judges so he's the first um, he's the first uh, judge that we know uh, in scripture and a question that relates to all of us in this day and age pastor how important is church attendance to God well I um think that it would be difficult for any serious Christian uh, to seriously question the importance of uh, church attendance. I say that because um, I need to remind people that man did not invent the church. Uh, Christ founded the church, Christ died for the church, Christ established the church, and Christ uh, exhorted the church to meet together. And when you come to the uh, book of Hebrews, we have an imperative that is given to the believer that we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves to get together. So if we disparage uh, church attendance, we're actually disparaging the value that our Lord has placed on the church, and we're also ignoring the imperative of the command that was given to us to meet together. So uh, it's only, to my mind, a backslidden or disobedient or rebellious uh, believer 
that would have any problems with understanding how important church uh, church is. The other thing I would add to this, uh, Nathan, not only does it show obedience to Christ when we attend church and provide, but it also provides an opportunity for ministry. Church is not just about going to church. Church is about using your gifts and your talent within the congregation to help other believers. It's also a means of spiritual growth. Most people that stay home are not going to read the Bible. They're not going to pray. Uh, church is a means of expounding the Word and teaching, etc., etc. And then it's a witness to the community. Imagine uh, what witness would be on Sunday if everybody stayed home. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the fact that people are carrying their Bibles and they're going off, it's a, it's a real testimony for uh, those who are not saved. And I think also it gives you an opportunity to encourage uh, other believers and edify other believers. As a matter of fact, that's what we're told in Hebrews chapter four, uh, to, uh, 12, about not forsaking themselves t- together. And the whole thing is to encourage one another. So it's vitally important to understand that church is important. But Pastor, you're sounding kind of legalistic there. How would you respond to someone who's thinking that? Well, it can be legalistic if it's obedience. I mean, uh, how 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 does a how does um, a Christian um, in any way uh, use the excuse that is is legal because I'm obeying Christ? If Christ has given a command and imperative, to, uh, we are. And by the way, many times in the Bible it talks about the obedience of faith. I know that people understand that that when a person has faith in God, it produces obedience in his life. So it's it's a verification that he's really got authentic faith because faith enables a person to be obedient. That's why again and again you find in the New Testament it talks about the obedience of faith, faith that leads to obedience. Uh, it's a transformation that takes place in your life and you want to follow the Lord. So it's not a matter of legalistic, it's more of living by the law, uh, which is, uh, you know, following the, the dictates of the Ten Commands to the, to the core and you're not living in the spirit of the law. But there are commands in Scripture and we have to obey those commands, especially uh, those commands that are given to us by Christ. Does that mean that I have to be worshiping on the Sabbath? That you have to be worshiping on the Sabbath. Oh, no. we worship uh, in, in on Sunday because we commemorate the Lord's birth, uh, the Lord's resurrection, and also the pattern that was followed by the early church, beginning in the book of Acts and going into the first century. Um, I've heard it said again and again by people who belong to Seventh Day Adventist Church that he, that uh, 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 Constantine changed the sun. That never happened. That never happened. What Constantine did was to endorse what was already going on and made it possible for church the church members to to meet but he never he never was the one that started it uh, he just endorsed it and facilitated it um, but um, we if a person look, I'm very very open to this subject if a person is convinced in the spirit that they should work on the Sabbath the Bible says that every man be fully persuaded so I am convinced I should worship on a Sunday I don't see why people are condemning those who worship on Sunday because they are convinced on the basis of the resurrection of Christ the practice of the early church and also New Testament pattern I don't know why they make it an issue um, but if a person is fully convinced in their mind that the sa- Sabbath is the day that they should worship God I'm not going to quarrel with that person because Paul said it's a matter of conscience let every man be fully persuaded Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from a listener. I, can a person who accepted Jesus Christ yet backslid go to heaven? Uh, look, if by if the person is referring to the fact that this is a genuine uh, Christian who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and now has uh, gone back and backslidden, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, if a person understands what true salvation is, uh, 
when a person is saved, and by the way, I'm doing the series in the book of Romans. I would suggest that if you haven't, if people haven't listened, listen to it. I'm dealing with the section of believer security. Uh, but the Bible is very, very clear that a believer wants to put the faith and trust in Christ and generally put the believer is justified. That means that the believer is declared righteous before God. It means that all his sins are forgiven and pardoned. The believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That means that when a person truly puts the faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals him until that day. And that seal cannot be broken until that day when our Lord comes back and returns and takes him to be a believer. The Bible also tells us that the believer is... uh, um, incorporated into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you read that in Corinthians chapter 12. We're all baptized into the body of Christ. So the believer is taken and put in the body. The Bible also said that the believer is united to Christ. He's placed in Christ. The Bible also says that nothing will ever separate the believer from God. And the Bible says no, there's no condemnation for the believer in the future. Uh, there, there are eight different reasons Paul gives in chapter 5 of Romans why the believer is eternally secure. So, if a person is genuinely, authentically saved, and that person backslides and go away from God, the answer to that question, he's still saved because he is never, he's out of Adam, he's in Christ, and the only way he can be lost again is put him back in Adam, uh, break the seal of the Holy Spirit, take him out of God's hand, and uh, and that will disprove biblical teaching that says he's kept until the day of repentance, uh, uh, until the day the Lord returns. The other thing about it is this, I think one of the best examples of a believer um, sinning and dying and still going to heaven is um, sorry, First Corinthians chapter five. That's a passage that deals with a young man who is um, living with his stepmother, yes, living in sin in the step with his stepmother, and the believers in Corinth are so tolerant uh, that they are boasting of how liberal and tolerant they are to accommodate this young man. And the Apostle Paul writes to them, and he says to them that they need to uh, purge out the lot, put the young man out of the church. But if you read the text uh, very carefully, um, Paul goes on to say that, put this man out of the church if he doesn't repent and let the devil destroy his body but then Paul says that his spirit might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ I think that's a significant statement now I cannot think of a sin worse than this than a man living in incest with his own stepmother but yet the apostle Paul is saying discipline this man Uh, if he doesn't accept he doesn't repent put him out of the church let Satan destroy his body but notice that his spirit might be saved in the day of Jesus I think to my mind that's one of the greatest uh, supports to let a person know that you can actually go away from God and your body be destroyed and yet be completely redeemed, your spirit redeemed. I tell people this. The way God deals with a backslider is very, very simple. Number one, God brings conviction in his life, and he'll use different means to bring conviction in that person's life. It might be listening to the radio, it might read a track, and then God confronts him. Somebody within the Christian community confronts him about his sin. If that doesn't get a response, God chastens him. And Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. Hebrews chapter 12 says, if you're not chastened as a person who is in a backslidden state, you're not a son, you're a bastard. That means you're an illegitimate son. As long as you're a Christian and you are in sin, the Lord is going to chasten you. 
If you don't respond to that chastening, what happens? God cuts his protection over you. He delivers you up to Satan. And then, finally, he cuts you off. There's a sin unto death. He removes you prematurely. That is how God deals with a believer who is living in continuous rebellious sin and would not repent, etc., etc. The, 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 uh, the taking the person out and cutting them off early is part of God's divine dealing with the backslidden person. So a backslider can backslide and be still safe and still secure. Pastor mentioned that he's preaching through the book of Romans, and if you're interested in tuning in and listening to that, be sure you tune in on Sunday evening at 8.15 for the program entitled Sermons of Grace. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is three minutes after 8 p.m. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua on 1160 a.m., 92.3 f.m. and online at And for this program, we are also live on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your questions. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, call 268-462-7420. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 268 782 one four five four. Another question that has come in. Good afternoon, Pastor Murphy. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar said that the fourth man he saw in the fire was like the Son of God. Was the Son of God an understanding at that time in history? I think we've got to be very careful we don't project our knowledge of Christ being the Son of God. Uh, and put that into the Old Testament. And remember, you're here dealing with a pagan whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, It is interesting when you look at the passage, it's in Aramaic, because part of the book of Daniel is in Aramaic language. And in actual fact, the word that is used there for God is the word gods, the son of a son of the gods. That's what it should be literally translated, a son of the gods. That's the literal translation. Um, So what and, and by the way, he explains to us what he meant by that. Look at, look at verse 23 and then verse 25 and then read verse 28. 23 or 25? 23, read uh, 22, 25 first. And okay. Then. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 23 says, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. And rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered, and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered, and said, Lo, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. In verse 28, Yeah. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and hath changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. So what's the antecedent of angel? sons of God. What he said, I'm seeing a supernatural being, that's what he said, like a, a supernatural from, from God, that's what he's saying. But he hasn't got any idea 
about the Son of God that is going to come in the future, which we know as a result of New Testament truth. So this is just uh, Nebuchadnezzar seeing uh, a being, a uh, fourth being in the furnace, and he's saying, I see one like the Son of God, the supernatural being that the gods have sent. And he said that this supernatural being is an angel that has protected uh, protected uh, Daniel. The truth of the matter is, uh, there's no doubt that the person in the in the in the, uh, the furnace was the Son of God. The, uh, what do you call a theophany? Uh, so he spoke truth, but his understanding of the truth is in his mind. This is a supernatural being that one of the gods has sent. But this, he doesn't identify him as the Jesus that we know about, the Son of God that was coming. Uh, he's just uh, using a terminology there that talks about a supernatural being that the gods have sent down. So I don't think Nebuchadnezzar, as a pagan, had the background to understand about the Son of God coming in the future, and we must not uh, project what we know today back into the Old Testament uh, in order to prove a point. We don't need to prove a point that way. Pastor, we had an individual who called in last week and would like you to explain Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. And they say, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Yeah, I think the first that probably said that as a Church of Christ person, because they believe that baptism is absolutely essential to salvation. So what they've done, because the see that believe and is baptized will be saved, uh, they say, you see what I'm telling you, that baptized is mandatory for salvation. So I think that's why it was sent in. But they need to read the other part of it. The person that's not going to be saved is the person that's not believed. The emphasis on believe is not on the baptism. But of course, in the New Testament days, be, let's be very honest, when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized, that was the proof that they really was following the Lord. It was a visible manifestation that they had committed themselves to Christ. And you know what that meant? That meant death. That meant persecution. So in actual fact, the almost, the total almost ran yeah, the real person in the New Testament times that really was saved would be seen to be saved the person who was baptized because that was a visible sign of showing to people that he was converted. Today, that doesn't pertain any longer. But the, underscore, the, the, the point there is the person that is not believing is the one that is, is going to be damned. Uh, and that is the key that is emphasized. Uh, the other thing I would like to say this, and this might cause some concern for people, that verse is not in the oldest manuscripts. Now, to say that, it was like I'm attacking the King James Version, but I'm not attacking the King James Version. I'm just simply saying that it's a fact that that verse is not in the older manuscript. So uh, that is another explanation. That particular verse is not there. Uh, so I don't know if I helped the person or not, but I think that they need to understand that uh, baptism is um, a visible manifestation of an inward change but it is not essential for salvation. There are several ways we know that. For example, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians said, look, the Lord sent me to preach the gospel but not to baptize. And he said, I thank God I only baptized Sosthenes and his family and I didn't baptize anybody else. If salvation was, uh, was essential, can you imagine Paul making a statement like that? No. <laughs> so, but that one verse, they hold on to that, right? Uh, and then they come to another verse in uh, Acts. Uh, he, uh, Paul said, uh, believe and be baptized. Yeah. But, uh, Again, uh, it is just a fact that the baptism was a complete 
proof that you really were serious. So you can see why there was that connection. But over the centuries, uh, as we got better understanding and the emphasis not placed on baptism, uh, so there seemed to be a, a, a meshing together and, and bringing these two things together, making them essential. But if you study the doctrine of baptism throughout the Bible, you'll find that it's who believes. Uh, go through the Gospel and go through the, uh, the book of um, Acts and, and Paul. The question was asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou wilt save. You remember also the Ethiopian eunuch? Uh, uh, um, he got converted and then he sees water and says, what hinders me from being baptized? And then he said, well, let's go and baptize. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That was the real issue. If you believe, then you follow baptism. And in every case, is belief salvation and then baptism in the Bible. They're not conjoined together. One follows the other. So that is the interpretation. Pastor, what's that question that's just come in? Should Christians celebrate Christmas? And if so, in what way? What does the Bible say about Christmas? The Bible has nothing to say about Christmas. The Bible is silent on Christmas. Uh, um, I know that if you read the history of uh, uh, how Christmas was started in terms of the the, uh, the celebration, there's no question about it. It has pagan elements uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's no dispute about that part of it. But I do not know of any Christian that honors the Lord's uh, birth uh, around Christmas time that is worshiping a pagan. Uh, we all recognize that. By the way, every day of the week is a pagan day. I don't know if you know Every day of the week is a god uh, a great God. So we're going to stop. We can call another. We're going to call use Monday no more. Uh, we're not going to use Tuesday or Wednesday, or Thursday, or Friday. What are we going to do? Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, it's the motive behind what we uh, we do. The reason why it was entered into the church is very very simple. Uh, again, it goes back to Constantine and goes back to those days where they're trying to create festivals in the in the church that rival pagan festivals so that believers wouldn't go to pagan festivals. So the reason why they did uh, the Christmas season is simply because they had a pagan festival where all the pagans would go and the church said, listen, let's have our own festival where we celebrate the Lord's birth and it was a, it was designed to counteract. It's like today with a carnival, you know. Churches today do other activities the man in the world, he goes to carnival, he misbehaves, he walks up, he does whatever on the streets, and that is totally improper and evil and, and sinful. The church creates other uh, means so that people, younger people, are not tempted to go to those activities. And, and who is to say that is wrong? It's a, it's a means of preventing people from being engaged in activity that is completely wicked and evil. So um, that's what happened to, to Christmas. So I don't have a problem if a believer wants to celebrate Christmas um, where you, uh, and by the way, in, in uh, our church, uh, the Baptist church, I don't know if it refers to all Baptist churches. Uh, I know in Barbados, the churches, people go to church in Barbados um, at least two days every year. Every year, every most Barbadians going to dress to death. That's mm-hmm. on Christmas and Easter, yeah. right? And Good Friday, those, those those three days. So if you want to reach people, really want to reach people in Barbados, and really want to get a person who would not go to church, uh, to get him on the sound of the gospel, you you should have a, 
a Christmas morning service and you should have the Easter and the Good Friday. People are guaranteed to attend. And that's what the churches have done in Barbados. Uh, here in Antigua, uh, I came and I found the Baptist church that doesn't celebrate Good Friday. They don't celebrate East, uh, Christmas either. To my mind, that was a shocker because every Christmas at 5 a.m. in the morning, there is a service in every church in Barbados, basically, wow. because people come out. They, 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 they come out on Christmas. It's a wonderful opportunity. So I'm not against using uh, that uh, occasion to try to reach people with the gospel. But if a person is offended uh, and feel that it is paganistic, I mean, use your conscience. This is a matter that's open to Christian liberty and Christian freedom. But I do not, I celebrate Christmas in a different way. I mean, we have a good time, family, sit down and eat, et cetera, et cetera. And, but if we don't party, we don't go around and stuff like that. Um, so I, I think a Christian uh, would be good in a home to have a time to sit down with the family. I think it would be a good time maybe to read the Bible story about his birth, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe discuss that. Maybe watch a video on, on the birth of Christ. Some, 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 but it's all up to the individual. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good evening to the panel. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you doing, Mr. Williams? Not too bad on you. Fine, thank you. But Nathan, what's up? I'm doing well. Good, good to hear your voice tonight. I didn't see you on Sunday. Yes, I had issues with equipment at the station here. Okay. Uh, Murphy. Yes, sir. Uh, two questions, please. Sure. Uh, concerning Paul, when when he had blaspheming against the Holy, against God and killing the Christians. Uh-huh. When he had accident? Huh? When you said when he had accident? When, when he had blaspheming. No, that, that was before Paul was saved. Yeah, I know. Yeah, go I ahead, go ahead. I'm listening now, go ahead. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, is it that he never reached a point where he had seen the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Yeah, but Paul never sang, I mean, Paul never attributed the works of the Holy Spirit to uh, demonic powers. Uh, he never did that. Uh, he just thought that Christ was a deceiver because Paul didn't have the concept of the Messiah coming and die. The Jewish Messiah was a Messiah that would come and deliver them from under the tyranny of Rome and set up a kingdom on earth and let Israel become the center of the world. So when the Messiah was crucified in ignominy and shame, they figured that this cannot be the true Messiah. And remember in the Old Testament, there are two aspects of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, the Messiah comes and the Messiah dies. But also in other, other, other prophetic writings, the Messiah comes and the Messiah reigns. They, they confused those two things and conflated those two things and weren't able to differentiate between the two. So they thought at his first coming, he would deliver them from under the bondage of Roman tyranny and Roman control. They didn't understand he was coming first to die. Uh, for the sins of the world, and then later he's coming back as, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to set up his kingdom. That's what caused Paul to persecute the church and think that Christ was a false Messiah. But uh, he never attributed uh, the works of, of uh, the Holy Spirit to the demons, and that is exactly what uh, blasphemy the Holy Spirit is. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is seeing something that God has done recognizing this is the power of God, and then turning around and saying, that's not God, that is Satan that did that. That's attributing the power of the Holy Spirit to demonic powers. And the Bible says that's a sin that can never be forgiven in this life, nor the life to come. And the reason for that is this, the agent of conviction is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that brings conviction. And to blaspheme against him, he's so grieved that he no longer brings you under conviction. So um, he didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, yes. Oh, because that had me confused, because... 
No, he never he never blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. He blasphemed against God. Uh, in the sense that he uh, spoke um, derogatory terms about Christ, but uh, never that uh, his works were performed by the devil. And that's exactly if you read the, the New Testament. Those people saw all these miracles, and uh, they were not willing to bow to his authority and acknowledge for him for who he is. So they turned around and said that what he's doing is be, he's doing it by the power of Satan or Beelzebub. And that's when our Lord made the statement that every sin is forgiven of a man except that sin against the Holy Spirit. But Paul never did that. Okay, then. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Let uh, me um, I, I attended church one time, and like, the way the preaching and the pastor tell me that if you don't receive the Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. And unless you speak in tongues, you cannot be a Christian. Yeah. I said, yes, I'm a Christian because I baptized and didn't tell no. Uh-huh. If I baptize in the name of Jesus. Uh-huh. Well, I, all I would say to you is that that had to be part of the, the Pentecostal confusion that's being created. Um, a person is saved when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When that person is saved and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, according to uh, Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit of God seals the believer and the Holy Spirit of God baptizes the believer into the body of Christ. In other words, he, he, he makes the believer part of the body of Christ, which is called the church. Christ is the head and the church is the body. It's the Holy Spirit that that connects the believer with Christ uh, as part of his body. That's what happens. The, the, the matter of the, the, the tongues now, they link that because in the book of Acts, in three different occasions, when a person received the Holy Spirit, uh, tongues were given. And they're saying because that happened in three places in the book of Acts, it must happen every time the Holy Spirit comes. So you only know that the Spirit is given to you when you speak in tongues. And that is hogwash, total hogwash. First of all, let me explain to you something, if I may say. The Old Testament had predicted that the way God would speak to Israel was to speak to Israel through foreign language uh, and to create jealousy. Uh, if you read Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, you see that that is explained there. So these tongues was a sign to Israel that God was doing a, 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 a work uh, and bringing about what is called the New Covenant. Now, that happened to Israel in Acts chapter 2. When the, when the Gentiles were being accepted into the church, the same event had to occur in Acts chapter 10 because the, the way of salvation, the way it took place, had to be done exactly as it was to the Gentiles so there'd be no division in the church. You've got a Gentile church and you've got a, a Jewish church. So whatever happened to the Jew in Acts chapter 2 had to happen in Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles because it's one church, one body. And then when you come to the other passage where a person was baptized, a group was baptized, uh, John's baptism, but were not baptized, with the, uh, did not know about the Holy Spirit being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul turned around and um, they were baptized and again the Holy Spirit was given and they uh, spoke in tongues. Again, you're dealing with Jews that have left Palestine. They've listened to the ministry of John the Baptist. They've gone back to their home. Meanwhile, Christ has died. They don't know what has taken place about his death, etc., etc. Now Paul is preaching after those many years. He begins to preach about Christ and explain to them this truth. And they realize, look, we only knew about John, uh, John's baptism. We didn't know about uh, the baptism in the name of Christ. And then Paul explains that. So this same thing has to happen. Otherwise, you're going to have three different churches now. Right, mm-hmm. So you're going to have the Jewish church must be the same as the Gentile church. And this group of um, Jewish believers who were under John's ministry but had left and gone back home, they have the same experience. So that is designed so that all there's no confusion about what happens in the church. 
right? But when you go to Corinthians chapter tw uh, 12, 13, and 14, we explain that the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues, is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and He is sovereign, and that not everybody speaking tongues. Paul points out in the book of Corinthians, he asked the question, do all speak in tongues? And the way it's structured in the Greek language, if you know Greek language, the answer is no. There are two ways of, of answering a question. One, that the answer is yes, and the answer is no. If you read the way that is structured, it's very clear that Paul intended the answer be no. So in Paul's judgment, not everybody's going to speak in tongues. Paul makes it clear that it's a gift that the Holy Spirit sovereignly gives to people. And to make it that every single believer has to speak in tongues is the most distorted teaching that you'll find in the Bible, and there's no biblical support for that whatsoever, because Paul himself made it very clear that tongues is not going to be a gift that everybody has. Yeah, because, uh, because why, why not demon, demon telling me about, oh, if I'm baptized in the name of Jesus, the Father and the Son, it's a wrong, it's yeah. a wrong baptism. Yeah. It was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ only. I tell him, why? So what about Matthew chapter 28? Yeah. Yeah, good, good good response to, to him. Uh, again, these are people that, uh, you know, for some reason they get off on tangents and they emphasize one simple aspect of the. It's like the Jehovah Witness who makes the, the name Jehovah the very gist and everything, everything. If it, the Jehovah, everything built. It's like the Seventh Day Adventists who make the Sabbath the whole world, <laughs> and all of them are missing one thing. What matters most is Christ and Christ alone. So these are all distractions from the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. But they can't see it. Because what happens to any man, whether he gets to heaven or not, is not whether he worship on the Sabbath or whether he claims to be baptized by some spirit or, or, or whether or not he speaks in tongues. What matters is, does he know Christ as Savior? Is he trusting the Lord Jesus Christ? That's exactly what matters. Yeah. And that's one more thing if I go. Uh, when the Bible text in Proverbs tell you he got shattered against his neighbor, what does that mean? Well, he what? He got flattered. He got flattered? Yeah, against his neighbor, yeah. Well, to flatter is just, you know, it's like me um, beefing you up and making you feel good, but I have ulterior motives. Right, or it could be that I I know something about you, but I flatter you that you can speak well. When in actual fact, you may not be able to speak well. Or maybe I say that you're very good looking when I know you're not good looking. You get what I'm saying? To flatter somebody is to actually misrepresent the truth. Uh, normally, in order to ingratiate yourself into the favor of that person, so uh, you're not supposed to flatter your neighbor. You're supposed to speak truth to your neighbor and speak truth in love. That's what the New Testament teaches. So you have to be make sure that you're not telling people things because you have an ulterior motive uh, by telling them something very pleasant in order to maybe get some favor from them. Uh, don't misrepresent the truth when it comes to your neighbor. Speak to your, treat truth to your neighbor. Don't, don't, don't misrepresent the truth. Okay, I had a different day. I did like if you're jealous or whatever. So, something for the Well, it could be. It could be. Uh, uh, I mean, you you can look at that element, but generally speaking, flattery is about misrepresenting uh, information in order to gain some favor, uh, and normally is is telling people things that are not true in order to gain their favor. Just only what flattery is. Okay, then thanks. You're welcome, sir. Uh, I will stop here. God bless you. Thank you very much for the call. Have a blessed rest of the week and continue encouraging others to listen to CRL. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 825 on this Tuesday evening. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua 
1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. This is a live interactive call-in program. It's called That's Truth. It airs every Tuesday evening. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air at one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 7821454 Tonight we're going to begin discussing a topic that all of us experience at some time. So I can guarantee that if you're listening to the program tonight, this pro- this program will apply to you to some degree. It might be in a relationship, it might be in the workforce that you'll experience this topic. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you're a non-religious person, we will all experience this topic. For some, our topic will result in depression. For others, it will spark anger. Our topic tonight is rejection. Pastor, do you want to give us a brief overview of this topic before we delve into it? Well, I think everybody knows that it's perhaps one of the most painful, devastating experiences a person could ever have, uh, this concept of rejection. As a matter of fact, I I learned uh, this past week that uh, MRI studies uh, have shown that the same area of the brain that um, experiences physical pain that when you are going to rejection, that same area is targeted. So that gives you an idea that this is a very, very, very painful experience uh, for a person to encounter. I don't think anything ravages the heart more or demoralizes a person's spirit more than to be rejected. It kind of chips away at your self-image. It ch- uh, chisels your uh, confidence and it uh, cheap- uh, uh, cheapens your sense of self-worth. And not only that, once you're rejected, um, it seemed to be a voice whispering in your mind that you're not, you're unworthy, uh, you're undesirable, you're incompetent, uh, and uh, it, it crushes because your, your your mind becomes a haunting chamber of self doubt about your worth, and that in itself is psychologically very very painful. So um, it is one of those devastating encounters that people have, as you pointed out, Nathan, in the introduction, that everybody faces it at some point in time. The question is not whether we're going to face it. The question is when we come across rejection, how are we going to deal with it? Is it going to make us a better person? Is it going to make us bitter? Uh, are we going to be able to, uh, to move on with our lives in a way that uh, we're not damaged for life uh, psychologically or spiritually? I think that's the biggest challenge. Uh, and one other thing, we got to remember that we're living in a world where basically selfishness rules. Uh, everybody's looking after self-interest. And because we're living in that kind of a world that is uh, dominated by self-interest, uh, you're going to find that personal rejection is inevitable because people are looking out for number one. And num- looking out for number one often means that you are seen as a challenge and sometimes you have to be rejected uh, because of, of the mindset that is there. You mentioned the fact that MRIs uh, actually the same way that we experience physical pain, we experience rejection. I saw a couple of studies where actually Tylenol had the same effect in alleviating the pain from rejection as it did from physical pain. Yeah, but that will, that will explain the same principle yeah. that the same area that targets physical pain is the same area in your mind that's targeted when you face rejection. Mm-hmm. So that, that that should let people understand that this is something extremely painful. This is, this is not something to be slighted. 
Uh, and that's why they were sometimes when people are rejected, they commit suicide. Yeah. I mean, they just can't handle it anymore. The self-worth is knocked off the scale. And uh, they just think the best way to end is to end this all. So it's a very painful thing that people are dealing with. If you are facing rejection tonight, please stay tuned. And if you are at a point where you are feeling like you need to consider a way out, please uh, give a call. If you need to give a call to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, we would be glad to take time to pray with you, to encourage you. Uh, call a local church, a local pastor. But suicide is never the answer. Uh, Pastor, how would you define rejection? I know that's a broad topic yeah. to try and define. Well, the, the word itself, uh, rejection, is really from a Latin word, and it means to, to be thrown back uh, after uh, examination. Like you look at an object, you're deciding if you want it or you don't want it, and then after scrutiny and examining and evaluating, uh, you decide that it hasn't met your standard and therefore you uh, reject it. You refuse to accept or consider uh, the person because they have not met your approval. Uh, you just, they're just not wanted. In the Greek language, there are two words that are talk about this word rejection. Uh, the first word is apodicomizo, uh, which means to reject as a result of examination or, or disapproval. It, it means, uh, word means away from, approve away from. It's found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, and it has to do with uh, the rejection of Christ, believe it or not. Uh, that he was rejected. Uh, the stone that the builders have rejected, yeah. referring to him. So he has faced rejection. And then the other word is uh, atheo, which means to set aside. And it means to cast away uh, as useless and unsatisfactory. And our Lord used that term in Matthew chapter 9 where the Pharisees set aside the law uh, of God and for the traditions of men. So the whole idea is to set aside, to cast aside. The Hebrew word is the word mess, and it means to reject, to refuse, or despise. So uh, I think it's very, very, uh, I think the English word uh, mirrors the exact meaning of the word. Uh, uh, the only difference may be that you're looking at it more from a point of view that people have examined it and evaluated it and decided they don't want it because it doesn't meet the standard. So the idea is that some standard has not been reached that you have in your mind. So when you reject a person, basically there's something that some standard you have to accept this person that to meet certain criteria. They haven't met it, and therefore uh, you have rejected them. And that is what makes it so painful because when you understand that's the definition, that the person has evaluated me, come to the point that I have not reached whatever standard they wanted, so they mean there's something wrong with me, and I begin to denigrate myself because I'm not accepted by that person. Um, but as I will point out later sometime, you know, that's where we have to decide where we find our identity, where we find our value. And if we find our value in anything, identity other than in Christ and His conversion and, and the fact that we are made in His image and we are redeemed, if we're looking to find our identity outside of that, we'll always be in trouble because we cannot meet the standards of everybody we meet and therefore we'll face rejection. But if He has accepted us as we are, it helps me to bear the burden when somebody rejects me because the king has accepted me. What is the pauper? He rejects me. What does that do? It doesn't make any difference in my life because the king has accepted me. So I think to find our identity in Christ and recognize who we are as believers and what he's done for us, to my mind, is the key. One of the things that we've had in the program is that people calling all the time about race. I think it's a massive mistake for believers. I can't figure that one up to now. Why is whether the black race, the Indian race, or the, the Chinese? That's not, the, that's not where you find your identity. You find your identity in Christ as your creator, as Amen. your redeemer. If you go away from that, you'll always end up 
because one form of racism replaces another it doesn't solve the problem the identity in Christ and knowing who you are uh, is really the means of dealing with the problem so I'm a little bit puzzled when people keep making racial things all the time and again they're missing who they are as believers and I think if we all find our identity in Christ and God's uh, as creators I think that becomes the basis of dealing with each other and uh, that helps to restore the dignity that people have lost I want to just wet the appetite of those who are listening and I'm not asking you to share all the information right now that you'll share in the future but do you really believe there's a way to overcome rejection? Yeah, again let me just use an illustration here Christ is our example, is he not? He's our example in everything Yeah. Was there anybody more rejected than he was? No I mean, I can't think of a person who did so much good, performed so many miracles, did such great teaching. But at the end of it all, he ends up with a handful of disciples and the vast majority of people who benefit from his ministry turn around and totally reject him. Mm. But what kept him all that time was his relationship with God, his Father. That's what kept him, even on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why he has my forsaken him. It was looking to God and depending on God that enabled him to go through this whole crisis. And the ultimate resource that we have to understand when it comes to rejection, we have to have a relationship with God. That is the key. When, If God has accepted me and he is the supreme leader of the universe, it doesn't really matter what these Lilliputian called men rejecting me because he has accepted me if i have that mindset and that philosophy it's just like me nathan uh, i might say this i don't fear talking to any man i don't care who that man is and here's here's my mindset he's a man like me okay he might have a degree he might but it's a man like me uh he was made like me right the only asset i have against him is that i'm redeemed Right, so I I don't fear uh, talking because every time every man I see, he's a man like me. That mindset has enabled me to deal with any person I'm dealing with. I don't think he's pink, blue, black, or green. It doesn't matter who he is. I don't think he's a lawyer, doctor, whatever, because he's a man like I am a man, and he's of my nature. So why should I feel that he is superior to me? That mindset has helped me to be able to deal with any person I need to talk to without any fear or uh, intimidation. Same thing has to be carried over when it comes to this whole matter of rejection. If we have the right relationship with God, even though we will be rejected and it's painful, it's our relationship with Him that stabilizes our lives and gives us purpose and meaning so that we can rise above this uh, problem that we have. You're mentioning a right relationship with God, and for the individual who's just tuned in, has maybe never listened to the Radio Lighthouse before, maybe doesn't even know what Christianity is about, can you define that? What is a right relationship with God? How do I start a right relationship? Well, a right relationship begins when we begin to understand what's the problem with man. The problem with man is man is alienated and man is estranged from God. And the reason why that has happened is because of the fall of man. Man has inherited sinful nature from Adam. And that sinful nature has man with a tendency where man does evil. Man does not pursue righteousness. He doesn't want holiness. God has uh, decided to deal with that problem. 
and God had decided he would have, by sending his son the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross to take man's place to die in man's place etc and he has brought about a transformation in a person's life who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ so the key thing here is to establish a relationship with, his, with, with God one has to come to Jesus Christ he is the door he's a means he is the one that is the mediator that takes the hand of God and the hand of man and he brings two of them together and that's what the Bible calls reconciliation People who are at war are now reconciled into a, a relationship of friendship. That takes place when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So it must begin with our conversion, our faith and trust. When that happens, a new relationship begins, and because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and our sins are forgiven, God now can deal with us as His Son. Uh, and that's why we can still t- we can talk to him, we can commune with him, we can pray to him, we can intercede with him, because we now become God's child, and that's the relationship we come. So there's two relationships going on. It's a, it's a bilateral relationship. What I mean by that is, uh, prayer is you talking to God. Uh, reading the scripture is God talking to you. So this has to be an ongoing where God is talking through His Word and you're talking to God through prayer. That is how you develop a relationship. But that requires time. Every single relationship requires time. And that's where believers begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of God as they connect with Christ uh, in that kind of a personal relationship. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we are beginning to discuss the topic of rejection. Pastor, is it beneficial to categorize rejection into different categories or forms? Well, I'm not just sure if you can um, define and um, truncate them and, and uh, put them into nice little categories, etc. But I do think that there are different types of, re- of rejection that uh, it's worth mentioning. Uh, for example, there, we all know this rejection when you you, have, you end a relationship. There are people who uh, enter a relationship and then uh, for some reason uh, one of the partners decide to terminate the relationship and uh, the other person feels rejected. Uh, that is a, a, a form of rejection. Sometimes it works the other way. You've got uh, what I might call unrequited affection for a person. In other words, this is not a relationship now that is started and is broken up. This is a relationship that the one desires to start, so they're showing all this affection to an object, another person. But all the uh, all that you've done to try to win this person uh, uh, over to your side, they just don't reciprocate and uh, and give you the same affection that you're showing. That's uh, another form of rejection. It's not that the relationship has started, but you're trying to start a relationship and the person just does not seem to be interested. Another thing is like losing a job. Um, uh, if you are fired from a job uh, or you're made redundant, uh, you can't help but feeling that the company didn't value you enough to keep you. Why did they keep other people and I'm the one that has to go? So in a very in a real sense, you can feel that the company has rejected you. Um, and then... Um, some people who face criticism, um, you don't support what they're saying or the argument that they're making or the case they're presenting, and you take a different position, they see that as rejection, uh, you know, because they get all tangled up. They can't divorce the personal from the objective in this kind of thing, and that could be a, a way of rejection. And then, um, of course, there's emotional and physical rejection as well, where... 
a husband is not showing the affection to his wife or um, a child is not getting the affection or the, the emotional support or the psychological support that's needed within the family. Uh, the mom doesn't talk, dad doesn't talk to them. They're not getting the kind of guidance that is needed, and they can actually feel that they are rejected. And then uh, even failure to uh, be accepted at a college can be perceived as rejection. Yes, go ahead. Yes, Pastor, we have a caller from Nevis. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? Good hearing your voice. I'm not not doing too badly. I'm here listening to the program. Uh Interesting as usual. Thank you. How can I help you uh, tonight? I would like you to explain Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13. Now, if I can, I will. If I if I need some time, we'll, let's, let's see what it is. Can you give me that reference again? Matthew 24, 12 and 13. Okay, 24, 12 and 13. I'll read those for us here. Matthew chapter 12. 12 24. 24, 12 and 13. 24, 12, okay. Okay. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Well, again, you've got to understand the context of the passage. What is that talking about? If you read the context of the passage, it's talking about during the Great Tribulation period. That's the seven-year period under which men will come under tremendous stress. And uh, that's a time when the, the Bible says there has never been nor will there ever be a time like this time. It's during that period of time um, the people are going to be tested. Those that uh, in the tribulation period uh, are going to be severely tested. And, and the, the problem there, as the Bible is pointing out there, that the prevalence of sin uh, is going to be so uh, common that um, as the Bible says there, uh, because of iniquity, the love of many, the love of Christ will wane. Uh, by the way, it still has application even to today, I must tell you this, because even though it has to the tribulation period, it's also relevant even today. That's the same thing you find in modern society. The, the, uh, the abounding sin in churches today, the iniquity that is involved in churches, the pornography that's destroying the very soul of the church today, uh, that is why the love of Christ and the desire to serve Him has waned. There's no doubt about that, that the more we love Christ and the more we are devoted to Him, the more we want to serve Him. So when you find a generation that is all talk and no action and very little involvement in the Lord's work, uh, you can be absolutely sure that there's iniquity that's abounding there. And I would say to you that the problem with porn in the church is the major curse of the church today because it can be done so secretly in the home on the computer on the cell phone and you can do it privately any place anywhere and the that is part of the so i think part of the reason why there's no real fire in our souls today and why there's no real um uh in many churches the iniquity is abounded Uh, but it says he that endures to the end by the way has to do with that during the tribulation period, uh, that's a uh, 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 that is mentioned in the Bible that he that endures to the end is, is going to be saved. So the person who comes through the tribulation period and bypasses all the iniquity that is there and endures to the end, he's promised uh, to be redeemed. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much for that call, Nathan. 
Continue listening there in Nevis and continuing encouraging others to tune into the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and specifically to That's Truth. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.44 and we are discussing rejection, something that all of us will face. And as Pastor started out by saying, it's not whether or not we're going to face it, how we deal with it when we do face it, Pastor. You were talking about forms of rejection. Yeah, I just mentioned one that will, you know you can you can be preparing your mind to go to college and you made the application and you think you're qualified qualified and then discover you get this uh, rejection note. Uh, you know that can be taken very personally as uh, you can th- think a thousand reasons why that might have happened. That can be perceived. Then uh, some people uh, want to make a request or they want to make a suggestion, even in a ch- even in a church in a meeting, and that is turned down. That is perceived could be perceived a reject. It's a very broad field. Uh, if you are not selected for team. Even, a, you know, imagine the church got a basketball team or soccer team and they're playing against another group and then you're the one that uh, they said, okay, you're going you're gonna to bench it. You could take that very, very personal as rejection. So there, and then uh, uh, marriage, again, um, intimacy, the fact that a partner withholds intimacy from the other partner, um, that could make the person feel rejected. Am I not? attractive enough, uh, what is it about me, uh, what do I need to do. Uh, so it's, uh, it can be, it's very, very range. And then uh, some women as well in the home, lack of communication, the fact that the husband doesn't talk uh, to me. Uh, he has time to talk to everybody else, but he doesn't talk to me. That can be perceived as rejected. So it's a very broad spectrum. Uh, and uh, it's a personal matter of how a person perceives a circumstance that could lead them to feel rejected. I was just thinking, Nathan, of uh, Cain. Yeah. I mean, you think about that just a moment. Uh, he bought an offering. His brother bought an offering. The Lord accepted his brother's offering re- and rejected his. And he felt totally rejected. Who did he take it out on? His brother. He took it on his brother. And that's the same thing with, when we talk about responses. There are people who, if, if a person is trying to win a person's uh, favor to start a relationship, and they are turned down, the person who the person goes and makes a relationship with, this person now becomes their enemy. They target that person as, as a kind of a revenge and speak evil against them because that's what happens. I was thinking also of, um, uh, you remember Ammon, who, well, this is not a romantic relationship we would endorse. Remember he loved his sister. I remember that uh, he betrayed her and raped her. Mm-hmm. And but he loved her greatly. But then when she t- uh, turned around and uh, quarreled and fret because he was raped, the Bible said he hated her afterwards because to him, she rejected him. And he now took out his hatred on his own sister. So it takes very different forms, and it all depends on what circumstances are and how people respond to it. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 847 Pastor, what are some of the effects of rejection? Well, the the impact is is again is very broad and very uh, very wide and very devastating, uh, very deep as well. Um, you mentioned a moment ago anger. Uh, when any time a person is generally rejected, it's a natural response that you be angry. And by the way, we we get angry for four reasons. We get angry either because we're hurt, because we're frustrated, because there's some injustice, or because 
uh, there's some fear. Those are the four basic reasons why we get anger. Then uh, sadness is another one that people respond to become morose and melancholy, morbid, uh, etc. Depression, don't cast, uh, disheartened, dispirited. And depression is just a prolonged period of being in the blues, down in the dumps. Jealousy and envy is another result of it. Uh, we mentioned again Cain and Abel. Uh, bitterness, uh, resentment and and uh, anger uh, leads to this bitterness. Vengefulness is another one that people decide that they, uh, they reject it and uh, get my pound of flesh and they're going to make sure they get that. Fear, fear of being rejected again. Once you're rejected once, uh, you have a diminishing evaluation of yourself, your self-worth, and it's always in the back of your mind that if I was not accepted to this person and they've evaluated me and discounted me, chances are this might happen again. So you live in a state of, of trepidation and fear that it could happen again. Anxiety about the future, especially when a, a person has been uh, ditched and they are now wondering, will I ever find a partner uh, who will care for me. Uh, there's also the sense of abandonment. Um, I have been used and now I'm being abandoned. And of course, the feelings of inferiority. I'm defective, I'm deficient, I will never measure up. That's another uh, effect it has. And then, of course, loss of self-worth. I'm not valued very much. And self-rejection. I wish I was never born. Uh, that 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 becomes a problem as what well. What should I do if I have that thought cross my mind? Well, again, if you wish you were never born, you're going to have to wrestle with that uh, with Scripture. Because again, as a believer, you always got to go back to Scripture. And if God is sovereign and God gives life, I have to face the reality that the fact that I am born, it is God's will that I be born. So I'm going to have to deal with my uh, my mindset as to what the biblical teaching in regards to this whole, this whole matter. Um, so the only way to deal with these matters is to confront uh, falsehood and error with truth. The only way to deal with that, and truth is found in Scripture. So you've got to go to Scripture to find comfort and find comfort in the God of the Scripture. So that would be my initial answer to that that, that response. I mean, there are other arguments uh, as to find out why the person feels this way, etc., etc., then try to maybe um, answer some of the concerns that they may have. But the initially, if you're going to deal with these problems, we've got to find out what the Bible teaches on these matters and go to the truth to counteract the heresy and the falsehood that is so much used by the enemy uh, to poison our minds and to destroy our peace and our happiness in the Christian faith. And the other one is self-blame. Um, it's my fault. I'm to blame. And uh, the other thing I would say is that feeling that you're a pawn in a game and that you're just being used by people. Those are 15 different reactions that uh, uh, effects that it has on people. There may be more, but I think uh, that is a sufficient um, scope to kind of encompass uh, many ways that people deal with rejection. I know we're throwing a lot of information at you this evening, very practical information and things to consider if you want to listen to this episode again, there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can tune in on Saturday afternoon at 3.30 until 5 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we will be rebroadcasting this same episode. And you can take notes and uh, absorb the information in more detail. You can also listen to the podcast. Later this week, we will be podcasting this program. If you're not familiar with a podcast, 
It's really just an audio file, uh, could be a video file, but an audio file that is up on the internet and you can go listen to it at your own convenience. And we will be podcasting it. And the easiest way to, there's two easy ways to get to it. You can go to Google or your search engine and just type in that's truth podcast mm. and a number of podcast providers will pop up you may use anchor.fm you may use spotify uh, google podcast apple podcast choose any of those major ones whichever one you prefer and you can open it up and then type in that's truth podcast and you can look for the latest episode and it'll be called rejection or you can go to our website caribbean or go to radiolighthouse.org, scroll down to the second picture that you see, which is a large microphone, and right in the middle of it, you're going to see a circle, and it says podcast. Click on that link, and inside of there, you will see a link for That's Truth Podcast, and you can look at our whole archive of episodes, and we have well over 100 episodes on different topics. So if you're looking for a good resource to encourage a friend, Pastor mentioned the dangers of pornography and the effects of pornography. We have a whole series on that, how to overcome it. Uh, We have a series on uh, dating, on marriage, uh, on cults, a lot of different topics, a lot of great material, and we would love to make that available to you and to your family and friends as a resource. Pastor, what are forms of rejection that are normal or reactions that are normal for rejection? Well, people uh, respond differently uh, depending on the nature of the rejection. And uh, there's no common uh, response. But there are some certain common elements within the different responses. And I'd just like to just mention a few. I, I, I did allude to one or two of them already. One of the things is to plot revenge. This happens a lot in romantic relationships that, you know, uh, you've rejected me, you've hurt me, and I'm going to do some damage to you. And that they go about secretly plotting uh, the downfall or um, something that is detrimental to the person that rejected them. The other one is withdrawing and becoming antisocial. I'm rejected, nobody cares, um, you know, that kind of thing. And so I become a kind of a recluse. I become uh, very reticent in how I deal with people, don't respond to people. The opposite of that is that I can develop, the person can develop a very critical spirit. They're responding to anger and frustration and this rejection. Now they're um, developing uh, a kind of a, a wall. And the way to do that is to become very, very critical uh, things. Uh, then there's verbal or physical aggression that is, is sometimes very, very common, not just uh, critical spirit, but um, the, the, the actual physical part of it can become very real. The other thing is that they become very fiercely competitive. They're striving now to excel uh, because the rejection seem to be some kind of deficiency of fault in themselves. They're trying to correct that, and in the process, they're going to the other extreme now, where they're such a perfectionist now, they're even, well, they don't even realize it, that they're making themselves worse in terms of being uh, accepted by others because they're now becoming more demanding and becoming more stringent, but that is a counteraction, so they've gone from one extreme to the other. Uh, the other thing is uh, they, they can develop what is called morbid introspection, 
And what I mean by that is that they keep looking into themselves all the time, analyzing themselves all the time. And when you go into yourself, analyze yourself, take it from me. You don't feel good about yourself because you see all your faults, you see all your mistakes. And if you begin to live with that morbid introspection, you'll never, ever be able to come out of your doldrums. You've got to look beyond yourself and look to Christ and what He's done for you and the fact He can forgive you. But most you begin to think of your uh, look inside, it can actually affect your life. Um, the other thing is abuse, and this is where you start to mistreat the other person or you begin to mistreat yourself. Um, you know, uh, don't eat. Um, if you eat, you eat too much. But this is this is actually punishing yourself because you something wrong with you uh, because you're being rejected. Um, escapism, and that is seeking solace uh, through some means, like become addictive. You might turn to drugs, you might turn to alcoholism, or you might become very, very promiscuous. Um, that is your way of escaping. I can prove that I am worth something and now I become so loose that every man can help me or every woman can have me, basically. I'm reacting to that to try to regain my self-worth. Uh, that is another thing. Could you escape to entertainment like television? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Nathan. That is one of the, mo- the most common ones. Uh, or Facebook. Uh, fa- Facebook. <laughs> Any of these uh, different social things that you can get involved in. Um, so you're trying to compensate for it. And then uh, self-hurt. It's another thing I mentioned before, uh, suicide, maybe uh, taking pills, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other thing that you become, though, is exaggeration. You begin to, to brag to impress people, but again, you turn people off. But the reason why you're doing that, you're compensating because in your mind, you're thinking the person has this concept about yourself, so you've got to start bigging up yourself. And the more you big up yourself, the more you turn people off. And then you become very defensive, Constantly arguing others, uh, but doing self-defense. And here's another thing that's very important. Um, you become a people pleaser. Because you've been rejected now, you, 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 you live a life where uh, you're trying to get the approval of people. And everything you're doing now is to please other people. So you're now losing your, your, your identity. You're now losing who you are. And you're going through a treadmill now of, of, um, of trying to win people's um, uh, affection, etc., etc. I, I, I mentioned also that you might become a perfectionist. Um, you might feel that because the person has rejected you, no, you try to be perfect. And then the other one is rebellion. I think there's another very, very important one where you, you reject all authority figures now. And you begin to live life on what I call a performance-based life where your acceptance is about how you perform. And that becomes a problem in your life. So those are about 15 of the different uh, ways at which people react uh, to this thing uh, called rejection. Very broad, but it affects you deeply. Pastor, I'm always amazed at how fast 90 minutes can go by as we begin answering questions and discussing a topic. And that's all the time we have for tonight. But be sure that you tune in next week as we will continue this very relevant topic of rejection, something that all of us have faced, I'm sure, to some degree, and we will face again as long as we are alive. So be sure that you tune in and we'll discuss how to deal with it. Encourage your friends that may be facing rejection to tune in next Tuesday to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Stay safe and keep your radio dial turned to CRL. Thank you for joining us for today's program. 
We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.